You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, how are you? Good. Beautiful. On this on this octave day of Pentecost, all of us yeah. joining together now for Holy Trinity Sunday. Which actually, uh, that's I wanted to ask you this question right now before we even got into the texts okay. that we'll be hearing at Mass. Well, can't we tell people what the texts are so we can write them down? Okay. Let's do that. All right. We'll do that, and then I'll ask my question. Okay. Okay. The first reading for Trinity Sunday is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. Our psalm is Psalm 8. The gospel for this weekend is from John chapter 16, John 16, verses 12 through 15. And the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. All right, now, so while people are getting their Bibles marked up and ready to go here. Here we go. Why is it fitting or why is it that Trinity Sunday would be the octave day of Pentecost? Sure. Okay, this is a good, it's a good question. I'm going to answer it by going maybe behind it a little bit. And that is to say, what is an octave day and why why does the church celebrate it? So for those that are unfamiliar with the liturgical cycle of the year, we oftentimes have octave days, that is the eighth day, octo, yeah, eight, the eighth day celebrated much like the feast itself. And there's a reason for that. And it goes back to the day of the resurrection. The fathers of the church explain that in Genesis chapter one, we know that, that God created in, in six days and on the seventh day he rested. The sixth day being the creation of Adam and Eve and the seventh day being the day of rest. And that was a Saturday, right? I mean, as far as the counting of the weekday is concerned, it was the Sabbath day of the Jews. And the fathers of the church tell us that Jesus willingly went to the cross that he might put the old Adam to death on Friday, on the sixth day, on the day in which Adam and Eve came to life. Then Jesus, the incarnate word of God, went down into the tomb and then rested in the tomb on the seventh day and rose from the dead on the first day of the week. But as the fathers of the church tell us, that day was like no other. For on that day, Jesus entered our human nature on the day of the resurrection, our human nature into the eternal day of the Lord. Yeah. Giving us the gift of eternal life, right? Death is destroyed in in the resurrection. And so, and so the eighth day has always been celebrated as in this way, as this special feast day. And, and actually, to be honest with you, this goes back, if you want to turn back with me to, to the book of Leviticus, 
I'm just going from memory here. So Leviticus chapter 23 regarding the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old mm. Testament, one of the great feasts of the Jews. You'll notice this same pattern given to us here. Leviticus 23, mm-hmm. verse 35. On the first day should be a holy convocation. as a, a holy gathering, right? A, a, right? An assembly, a church, right? That's what that means. Mm-hmm. So a holy, a, a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. So you're, it's the day of rest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, seven days you shall present offerings by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation, present an offering of fire by the Lord. It is a solemn assembly and you shall do no laborious work. So there is the first day and the eighth day. Okay, so the fathers of the church pick up on this pattern and, and re- tell us that this eighth day is the day in which Christians live now forever. This the day of the resurrection. We live in the light of the resurrection. This newness of life, which is given to us, as St. Paul says. And so in the liturgical cycle of things in which we commemorate historical events, making them present liturgically, um, we also have this kind of cycle of eight oftentimes. And so it's not uncommon on the great feast days that eight, eight days after the feast, we celebrate the feast like the feast, right? It's, it's the right. it's the whole thing all over again, and so um, so here the feast of the of the Holy Trinity very nicely placed in the liturgical cycle, because of course Pentecost is the day of revelation or one of the days or it is the great day of revelation of the life of the Holy Trinity gathering together the Church, which is a lot what we're going to talk about today. Because I think there's a big mistake, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this in, in our approach to this feast day of the, of the Sunday of the Holy Trinity, and that is to dislocate ourselves from material, physical revelation and kind of lift our eyes to the heavens and try to describe and come to know the life of God in himself apart from how he's revealed himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be very practical about this because yeah. yes, God has revealed himself as father, son, and Holy spirit. Obviously they are individuals because Jesus, the word of God speaks of sending the Holy spirit mm-hmm. and speaking with the fathers. There, there's this, there's a, there's a, a pretty clear a distinction that's given to us, especially in the Gospel of John, that the, obviously the, the Father and the Son are one, and yet, and yet they're distinct. And the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father are one, and yet they're distinct. It's very clear the distinction. But how this relationship actually works is one of, of theological speculation. Yes? Sure. Now, I want to be very careful. Because I'm not denying the great tradition of the church regarding how the Trinity and the life of the Trinity has been described. Active spiration, passive spiration, uh, and so forth, okay? However, there's a limit. And let's be honest. We are human beings. We are limited rational creatures who struggle to understand and wrap our minds around that which is above reason. And therefore, we must, uh, well, created reason, right? 
Sure. Therefore, so I'm going to be very careful here. Otherwise, I know somebody's going to attack me. I have, well, I keep yeah. laughing because you keep saying being very careful. I mean, yeah. Trinity Sunday gets the nickname of Heresy Sunday. It does. So. Why? <laughs> because we dislocate the our, our understanding of the Trinity from the revelation of the Trinity. Sure. And the revelation of the Trinity, I'm going to surprise you, Annie, and probably most of our, our listeners here. The revelation of the Trinity is given to us primarily in the Feast of Pentecost in mm -hmm. terms of the church. Sure. And so just as St. Paul talks about the body of Christ, the church, in terms of a body, right? He says, one's a hand, one's an eye, one's an ear. This is St. Paul giving really good catechesis on how to come to know th divine things. Mm -hmm. Because we can't come to know divine things apart from their, the revelation of God made to us in the created order. And so St. Paul says, look at a body. Your body is revelatory of the church. Yes. And I can say then also that the church on earth is revelatory of the divine assembly of God himself. And when we dislocate these things, we start to stumble in our, in our explanation because it's not the way that we as human beings come to know. And that is to start to talk about the things of God in an immaterial manner because we know in material manner. Yes, does this right. make sense? Yeah. I'm going to leave it at that. It's a, just a little bit of a warning, a little red flag or maybe a, a yellow flag. It's a warning. Yellow flag, Trinity Sunday, be careful that we don't try to 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 wrap our minds around and that is my my limited knowledge becomes the determining factor of the immaterial and eternal truth because then i limit god to my image and likeness rather than my image and likeness being raised up in his image and likeness so as you said, i'm saying you got that yeah. with me okay Absolutely. i don't think i said that last sentence all that well but you got the point <laughs> i don't want to be the judge of god i want him to judge me. me yes yeah indeed indeed okay. okay so with that said now let's dive into uh, the first reading there we go proverbs chapter 8 and uh, we will be reading verses 22 through 31 proverbs like right in the middle of your bible guys yep bingo right yeah go Ro all right proverbs, go. what did you say chapter 8 chapter 8 you in chapter verse eight? 22. 22. You see that? That's why I use highlighters in my Bible. Look, it's all good. You got that highlighted? No, oh, how nice. You okay. already knew where to go. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, here we go. It says, thus says the wisdom of God. The Lord possessed me, the beginning of his ways, the forerunner of his prodigies of long ago. From of old, I was poured forth at the first before the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet the earth and fields were not made, nor the first clods of the world. When the Lord established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the foundations of the earth, when he set for the sea its limit so that the waters should not transgress his command, then I was beside him as his craftsman, and I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, 
playing on the surface of his earth, and I found delight in the human race. It's a really beautiful passage. Um, bef before we actually get into this specific text, though, can you just give us a little primer on the book of Proverbs, what it's all about? Sure. Well, it, it is exactly that. Proverbs, that is words which are offered for instruction of God's people. And, and so like very similar to what I said earlier, a lot of people would use this book, I would say misuse this book, apart from its original intention. And its original intention is very much as Proverbs. A proverb is, is something that gives, gives you instruction of you know, wise sayings, like avoid evil men, right? Um, yeah, do good and avoid evil and you'll find happiness, right? Okay, you see what I'm yeah. saying? Little, little uh, instructions by which you might be reminded to live a life of virtue, yeah? And much of the book of Proverbs exactly like that. Much of the book of Proverbs, especially in this first section, chapters one through 10 of the book, but really the whole book, is very much talking about practical wisdom about how to live our life in order that we might find happiness, and it was written during a time, many have said it's a collection over time. Now, it has traditionally been attributed to which writer? Solomon. Solomon. Why? Because well, it's wise. Well, yeah, I mean, probably because, well, he wrote it. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but well, the other okay, than, there's that other answer than, too, I suppose. Turn your Bibles very, very, very quickly to 1 Kings chapter 4. First Kings chapter four. Look at that. I turned right. I literally turned my Bible exactly to the page. You must go to that page a lot. Well, maybe. I don't know. Ephesians chapter four. Verse. Well, sorry, verse 29. Chapter four. First Kings chapter four, verse 29. And then keep being through verse 32. Go ahead. All right. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and largeness of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan and Ezraite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the nations round about. He also uttered 3,000 proverbs. Bingo! His songs were 1,005. There you go. You got the song of songs. You got wisdom. You got Proverbs in here. So Solomon was a writer and he, to be honest, he was, a, he was a father. He was an instructor, right? He told his people what to do. And why did he know what to do, Annie? Why did Solomon know how to follow the right path? Well, he asked God, right? Yes. But he also knows how to follow the right path because Solomon himself followed the wrong path in um, many ways. Sure. And well, oftentimes yeah. in our life, we go down that road and you see how God brings good out of evil. Oftentimes, I look back on my life in which I was away from the church and, and very much living a life apart from the church and apart from Christ. And I can see now how God is able to bring good out of evil because I learned many things in my life in those days about what not to do. And then it becomes much clearer of what to do. Yes. So sure. Solomon then began to instruct uh, his children and those around him 
on how to live the good life, right? The, the, so the tree, Proverbs the written then after he, you know, starts taking on all these concubines and well, allows the altars. I don't know when he, to... I don't know when he wrote it. We don't know when he wrote it. We just know that he wrote it. I'm just making the point. So okay. here's the thing. If we turn back to Proverbs chapter one, mm-hmm. Proverbs chapter one, we'll see a, a verse that is repeated a number of times in the book that kind of can bring us back home as to the purpose of the book itself. Okay. And it's here in Proverbs chapter one. Are you with me? I am here. Verse eight. Well, we go back to verse seven, which tells you the first step in Mm. wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We have to talk about what wisdom is because we're talking, we're talking here in this, in this uh, passage about wisdom, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then here's the verse I want to point out to you. Hear my son, your father's instruction and reject not your mother's teaching for they are fair garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Hmm. Yes. Look, kids, pay attention. Yes. Yeah. Don't you think I don't know anything? How do you think I got this gray beard? You know, so this is what Proverbs is, is it's instruction from a father and a a mother to their children. And it's and these are sayings that can be memorized. There are stories which can be remembered short and to the point to say, hey, avoid that road and go down that road. And that's what the book of Proverbs is. It's, it's, It's a great moral instruction for the church if the church and the members of the church listen to this to what's being said here and they can be taken very as they're designed in small pieces. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then applied to our life. All right. So in this particular passage in Proverbs chapter eight, who is this wisdom of God that is speaking here? Yeah. Well, certainly wisdom is personified in this book. And I'm just going to start by saying that whether what, what Solomon intended in writing about lady wisdom here in the book about the about this person wisdom or, or wisdom as personified, certainly he did not have a developed Trinitarian theology, sure, right? Sure. And so it's not uncommon in the ancient world to personify things so as to make them more real to the person reading and more understandable and more able to be internalized, right? So I just say initially, let's not push it too far. Although the author of this book is Solomon, but the author of the book is also God himself. And so we don't want to discount the eternal revelation, if you will, or the divine revelation in the midst of man's instruction. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, but, but at least initially, wisdom is personified in the book, and which should cause us to ask the question, what is wisdom? Yeah. I mean, if we don't know what wisdom is, we're not going to be able to wrap our minds around any of this. And the classical definition is that wisdom is the knowledge of the causes of things. Now, that's a fancy way. I'm going to make it sometimes, you know, I like I I like making things simple because I'm very simple. Yeah. I'm not smart like all these guys. You got all the philosophers and things like that. Knowledge of the causes of things that is in, in kind of layman's terms where a thing came from, right? How it came about and what its end is. That is what it's made for. Sure. If you know where a thing came from, how it came about, who made it and, and for what purpose it was made, then you're going to know everything you need to know about the thing 
And then when we speak about practical wisdom, prudence, yeah, we're going to know how to best use the thing. Yeah. Speaking with my son about this the other day, I said, I said, you know, we oftentimes go from material thing to material thing, and we ultimately are never satisfied by any of them. And Augustine says beautifully, our, our hearts are restless and they will not rest when they rest in thee, because we are made not for limited material things, but we're made for communion with God. And nothing is going to replace that hunger in the human heart. But but the going from material thing to material thing and, and, and the fact that our our hearts are restless until they rest in thee does not discount the value of the material thing itself, but the problem and where sin comes in and the difficulty we face is that we are going to looking in the material things in limited things for the one thing that will make us happy and fulfilled, which is ultimately a relationship with God. If we know where a thing came from, what it's for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. then I can make use of the thing properly and it can actually bring happiness to my life and I won't leave it disgusted. I won't leave it disappointed because I never expected it to do anything beyond its nature. Yeah. So ultimately when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about the, the understanding of the nature of things and then the nature of things in relationship with my life and with the things around it. Yeah. And if I, if I, if I see something, I understand it in its proper relationship to all of this, then I'm going to be a wise man. And ultimately I'm going to be a a prudent man. And as I'm going to use things as they're meant to be used, and I will not become disappointed with them because I will know their limits and I will know their purposes and I will have no expectation beyond those. Does that make sense, Annie? It does. I'm wondering, though, because I, I mean, as I was reading it, I felt like I was listening to like Jesus talk. Honestly, I mean, it sounded yeah. like the second person of the Trinity talking. Well, is that sir, wrong? No, not at all. It's not at all. Not at all. In fact, St. Paul tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of the Father, right? But my initial point here is just say, what does Solomon mean? And what is the father speaking to his children really trying to communicate here? Now, there's certainly a further revelation to be given. And that is ultimately what is described here in chapter eight is much more than simple, practical wisdom. Yeah, that's of how I mean, to that was going to be another question I that's had. Right. I was like, I'm not sure that I really yeah. gleaned a lot of practical advice out of this well, particular because, passage. Yeah, be, because now we're starting to realize that the wisdom God has given us, and that is our our our, our understanding of wisdom or our gift of wisdom, a created reality in us actually is only really wisdom if it is rooted in the wisdom of God, who is the beginning, who is the cause, not only the knowledge of the causes of things, but is the cause of all things, right? And so now wisdom as I know it as a man is given to me so that I can come to know what it is and ultimately who it is in God. And of course, the wisdom of God applied to Jesus, who is the revelation of the beginning and end. He is the alpha and the omega, right? Now, I'm going to add one other biblical thing that I think is helpful, and that is something called a Hebrew mirism, M-E-R-I-S-M, a Hebrew mirism. Uh, the scriptures often are written in this way, using this, this literary device called a Hebrew mirism to tell us something beyond the simple words that are being used. Okay. I am the alpha and the omega from the book of revelation. Yeah. Jesus is speaking. I am the alpha and the omega. What does that mean? Is the, the, the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, 
right? right. No, right. it's not yeah. what Jesus means, right? He yeah. means he is the beginning and the end of all things, right? And, and ultimately used in this way as a, as a literary device in the scriptures, when the two furthest points of a thing are mentioned, it is mentioned so that all that is in between is covered. He is not only the beginning and the end, he is all things and all things have come about because of him. Yes. Right. So in a similar way, we can speak of wisdom here, although this is not a technical Hebrew merism in its in literary sense, in the sense of to the end of, uh, you know, mentioning, but nevertheless, wisdom itself as the, as the beginning and end, as the cause of all things, as the knowledge of where a thing came from, and where it's going. True wisdom is the full spectrum of all of knowledge. Yes. I'll give you one last example before I move on from that point, And that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yes, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the tree of knowledge of all things. This is a, a Hebrew merism given to us. So as we look at this text, then uh, certainly wisdom is now personified. And we begin to learn that that the wisdom on earth, authentic wisdom among men is a created gift because we are made in the image and likeness of the eternal wisdom of God. And now we can read this text with profit and begin to see in it, based upon what I've come to know as what wisdom is, I can begin to draw, be drawn up to what wisdom really is. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. You know, I was reading about this passage. I think it's kind of interesting. I understand that the first part of this passage was the source of much controversy in the early church, you know, the heretics, like the Arians trying to say, well, you know, this is about the son of God and he was created mm. by the father. I'm wondering, I mean, what is the proper way to understand this text? Because I can see how sure. they might be able to read into that. Sure. Okay. So, so, so to, to kind of get a, 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 an insight into what was going on in the early church regarding this text, we have to go to the gospel of John chapter one. So if you turn with me very quickly, John chapter one, and this might seem like we're kind of going, you know, far afield, but, but, but we're not because John himself writing the gospel toward the end of his life was fighting particular heresies that have, that were starting to infect the church and dealing with the fact that the church was now really in the middle of a Greek culture, right? John's written in Greek right. and uh, a Greek culture, which has a highly developed philosophy and he begins using words which are known among the philosophers, among the Greeks, um, to describe things which are not Greek at all. Yeah. Um, well, I shouldn't say they're not Greek at all, but I mean, you said they're not, not, not in the sense of Socrates and Plato, sure. per se, but speaking to these people who have now come to faith in Christ, and he starts to speak their language. So he begins his gospel now in Greek, and Arche and hologos yeah in the beginning okay in the beginning and okay and hologos in the beginning was the word and the word was with god i want to read this now in light of this passage here in the book of wisdom or in the big uh, book of proverbs regarding wisdom itself and see how john is now describing jesus in a similar way right in the beginning was the word and the word was with god he was in the beginning with God. I mean, look, does this not sound like yeah, what we're reading in Proverbs? Very much yeah. like Proverbs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
all things were made through him. Without him was made nothing that was made, uh, that, that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light shines in darkness, darkness does not comprehend it, and so forth. You should know this by memory. This is the, what was it, traditionally the, the last gospel, every traditional Latin mass for the last, you know, what, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I don't know when the last gospel started to be used in the Tridentine mass, but certainly, you know, certainly 500, a thousand years. Yeah. What's that? I was to say certainly they do it today. So yeah, so it should be memorized by all by all by all Roman Catholics. And um, but here you go. John begins talking about the logos of God. Logos meaning word. word. And what is he what is he speaking of? Is he talking about God speaking? Hello, right? That no, no, he's talking, he's talking in Greek terms about what was understood to be the the rational logos, the rational word, right? Before you ever speak, the concept comes forth within you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then you speak that concept out. Yeah. Unless you're mindless, but even if you're mindless, yeah, but uh, no, no, even if you're mindless, it must be, you must conceive of the word before you speak the word. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. We, have, we, yeah, we just go about our life just doing it and we have to stop and think, how is this happening? Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I, I conceive of the word before I speak the word. Yeah. And this is the, this is what, what John is talking about in his gospel, writing in terms that, a, that a Jew would very much have understood in terms of wisdom. Yeah. And like I said, St. Paul goes on to say that Jesus is, is the wisdom of God. Yes. And so the early Christians very much understood that, that this passage refers not only catechetically of a father to his son, but it's an actual instruction and an, a revelation now that we understand that the divine word and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of the Father, the revelation of the Trinity on this feast day, they understand that the wisdom spoken of by Solomon in the Old Testament was a wisdom above and beyond the created order. Mm -hmm. And that wisdom came forth from God from all eternity. Yeah. And so we read the passage. Thus says the, wis thus, thus says the wisdom of God, the, the Lord possessed me the beginning of his ways, the forerunner of his prodigies of long ago. From of old, I was poured forth at the first before the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no fountains or springs of water before the mountains were settled into place before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet the earth and fields were not made, nor the first clods. It's before the NRK. Before in the beginning of Genesis chapter one, yes, mm -hmm. when the Lord did these things, when he created, I was there in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was made nothing that was made. Yes. Yeah. So that you can see the clear application of what the, the gospel writers are writing, what St. Paul is writing to Old Testament concepts, which were in seed form, but not fully understood. And not fully understood until the coming of the Holy Spirit, in which the church would be enlightened and come to the knowledge of all good things. Just to keep it on John chapter one for a second, yeah. um, when at the end of our, well, and Proverbs eight. So at the end of Proverbs eight, I found delight in the human race. Is that kind of like, and the word became flesh? Um, well, yes and no. No, I mean, I would, I would say this, I said that, that Again, Solomon writing this, I mean, yes, but again, let's go back to its original context. I found delight in, uh, first of all, please, for the love of anything holy, can we not translate 
biblical texts so as to appease the modernists, Mm -hmm. the human race? No, mankind, mankind. But everybody's so allergic to it that even the USCCB has a translation (laughs) that is this. Okay, that's I'm sorry. I'm just reading from the lectionary, Father. I'm sorry. No. And I found delight in mankind. Yes. And this is probably for us the most beautiful of the phrases of the whole business, because it, it, it means that he wanted to be with us and, the, and, and Solomon discovering what the wisdom that he has been given really is. It really is a participation in the divine nature. It really is a participation in who and what God is. And then we can rejoice in our communion with God as Solomon did. And then we can begin to apply this ultimately, not as Solomon would have, ultimately as only a Christian can on this day in which we celebrate the octave of the gift of the Holy Spirit and our communion with God himself. Yeah, I mean, I bring it up because I was looking at the responsorial psalm. I mean, when I behold your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, Mm. what is man that you should be mindful of him? I mean, it is. You you think about it. It's just like mind blowing. This is this is what St. Augustine quotes in his opening chapter in his confessions. So I'm going to recommend to all of you to read St. Augustine's opening chapter which I remember that I read when I was coming back to the church, it blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And I, and I recommend it to all of you, but there it is. Yeah. What is man in this, all of this, that you're mindful of me, but you know what that requires is that I know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that requires wisdom. Yeah. Mm. To know where I've come from and where God intends for me to go to know and understand the purpose of the sun and the moon and all of the created things of this world, yeah, in their proper nature as created by God and for their proper purpose as to give glory to God. Yep. All right. Shall we move on to uh, John chapter on. 16 to the gospel? Absolutely. John chapter 16. Head over to John chapter 16, and uh, we will be reading verses 12 through 15. Are you there, Father? Yep. Let's okay. go, John. John, well, I was already in John chapter one, so it's easy. Yes, yeah, John chapter 16. Flip it over a few pages. Verse 12. Go ahead. Verse 12. Jesus said to his disciples, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. There you go. Hello, modalists. You know what modalism is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that God is just, is just the father's kind of modes of the one, but not individual obviously clearly not the case okay yeah absolutely first of all i mean obviously we want to get the context here what what is the context in which jesus is speaking to his disciples at this well annie you know just get in that habit and that is Mm -hmm. just turn a couple of pages you got your high your your bible highlighted and you're going to see 
there in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world, and so forth. And then we have the, the Last Supper. And so this is the Jesus's discourse with his disciples at the Last Supper before he goes out to the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane. So I always like to approach this as Jesus's last words to his best friends before the most important moment is going to come, the cross. So I, I believe that these passages are best read in that way. And that is mm -hmm. to come to Jesus as our best friend and allow him to speak these words to us. And as his most important instructions, the most important words. Well, it's interesting because we've been hearing from the Last Supper discourse for, yeah. I feel like, weeks now in the Easter season yeah. leading up to the Ascension and Pentecost and, and now Holy Trinity Sunday. So makes sense because we don't have any of or much of his words from between the resurrection and the Ascension. So right i don't know anyway okay so looking at what jesus says here i mean what what do we learn about the nature of the trinity and and basically like the the role of the father and the son and the holy spirit in relation to each other well this is where annie i'm going to go back to what i said at the beginning and that is to say that be careful we want to be careful that we don't force john to say things which he didn't intend to say Mm -hmm. yeah or not allow him to to well how about this we want john allow be allowed to speak and instruct us yes and ultimately we want jesus to be allowed to speak and instruct us and rather than importing late scholastic theological conclusions into our homilies on trinity sunday we can simply accept jesus's words as they are and that is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are very closely related. In fact, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, yes? Mm -hmm. And yet there is this distinction, yes? And I think what it, for, for me looking at this, this passage, I think one of the important things is, is I, I ask the question, why? Why does Jesus wait to give the Holy Spirit? Why is this waiting happen? And, and, and the answer is given to us in the first verse there. Jesus says, disciples, I have much more to tell you. He says, there's much truth that you don't quite know. But you cannot bear it now. Yeah? You're not going to be able to wrap your minds around the one I'm going to give you. Okay? Because it's just too much for you right now. You gotta, you got, you're going to have to go through the passion, the resurrection. I'm going to have to spend another 40 days with you. And then I'm going to have to ascend into heaven and you're going to have to go up to the upper room and you're going to have to pray about what you've been seeing for 10 days. Hmm. And only after that, am I going to really tell you what God has prepared? Because up to that point, you're not really going to know. But when that happens, you're going to understand everything I'm telling you right now, because I'm going to send the spirit to you. Yeah. And so the the this passage ultimately given to us because of the trinitarian nature of this passage but father hezekiah is going to tell you that ultimately we can't understand what jesus is talking about here ultimately apart from pentecost mm -hmm. and and when i talk about pentecost we, I, I talk about the revelation of the church itself as the apostles receive the gift of the holy spirit and re, and now now is revealed to them the fullness of the gift of God 
Yeah. So I want to go and share with you a passage that I have um, uh, for you regarding the church in which I've shared many times with our ICC family, but I do believe it bears repeating. In fact, I've got a number of quotes that I would like to share with you, if you don't mind. Please. Okay. Pope Leo Twelfth says this. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives himself in view, not of beginning to dwell among the saints, but of bathing them in his profusion. Not of inaugurating, but of perfecting his gifts. Not of making a new work, but increasing his largesse. So in other words, the Holy Spirit's been at work this whole time. The life of the Trinity has been revealed from the very beginning. But there's something new taking place in, from a sense of revelation. Yeah. In fact, Vatican II picks this up beautifully. It says, the church is already present in figure in the beginning of the world, in figure. Mm-hmm. The church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and in the old alliance. Yeah. But now there's this newness taking place. Yeah. And, and it's that newness of the life of the Trinity, which is revealed in Pentecost in the church, which now allows us to begin to understand the communion of God. Is, let's be honest. This is what I did. I was giving a talk the other day, and I said, and I, I said, who is God in Genesis chapter one? And of course, they have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, it's Genesis chapter one. Open your Bibles. Who is God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's, he, he's the infinite and eternal God. He's the, whatever. you're importing all sorts of theological conclusions. Who is God in Genesis chapter one? He's the creator. Ultimately, that's the answer, right? Yeah. And, and we come to know him through his creation, what he's made. This is what St. Paul says in Romans chapter one. We come to know him through his creation. And so similarly here, we come to know the communion of the Trinity through the life of the church. And ultimately what the church is called to, how the church is called to live. We're talking about wisdom, where a thing came from and what its purpose is. Where did the church come from? By the gift of God's life upon the apostles. Yeah. And in the life of God's people from the very beginning. Yeah. And what is its purpose? To do what God does. Ultimately, I'm going to go back to our original passage that we had in the book of wisdom that you pointed out. So, so rightly, I found delight in the, in mankind. The last verse. Yeah. God has poured forth his life from the father to the son, and the Holy spirit from all eternity. And in the created order, he does just this because he's not different. That's what he is. He, he is love. He is the giving of his life, right? And so now the church is set up to do what God has done. And ultimately, then we can apply the life of the church to the life of wisdom. We can apply the life of the church to John uh, chapter 16 that we're looking at here. Um, that ultimately, we are meant to receive the gift of God. And then to give it to others that there might be a communion among the saints and that what we, that we might find delight among mankind, that is the church and the, the, the communion that is established in the church now begins to reveal to us the communion of God himself. Okay. So that's what Jesus means by guiding you and by default, I guess, uh, well, guiding us to all truth. Um, yeah, that- I mean, I- declare to us the things that are coming. This isn't like 
God's going to give me special knowledge about the future. I, I love this. Or... Okay. Well, first of all, and he said, so this is what Jesus means, but you just said, father has guys. I'm not going to be that. <laughs> okay. But, all right. But, but, yeah. but, but no, you're right. Andy. So ask, I want you to ask the question again, that you just said at the end there, because I think it's super helpful. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the way that this is, you know, written, he says he will guide you to all truth. And then a little bit later, he will declare to you the things that are coming. So is he going to be like giving me special knowledge of the future? I mean, like, what is he saying? Here? Right. So, so we can go back to wisdom. We can talk, we go back to alpha and omega that we were talking about earlier. And I want to go now to the nature of the church itself, because we so oftentimes approach the church in magical ways mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And in, in terms of formulas, right. Right. I, I you know, uh, the the formula for an infallible declaration, for example, okay, is, is you have sure. to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you can't do this, you have to do this, he sneezes, that doesn't uh-huh. happen, you know, uh-huh. no, but, and, and look, I'm not trying to downplay infallible statements or anything like that, and in fact, I'm going to upplay them by saying this, the church is the communion of God's people made in his image after his likeness, that means the church is the communion on earth of those who are in communion with God in heaven, mm-hmm. Yeah. The things of God have become the things of man. Or we should say that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been elevated to the life of God himself, such that the church as a communion speaks as God speaks. So when we talk about truth and infallible statements and prophetic statements and things like that, we always must be theocentric in our understanding. Theocentric in our understanding of what a, what a council of the church is. Theocentric in our understanding of what an infallible statement is. When we go to the catechism of the Catholic Church and we look up infallibility, do you know it doesn't mention the Pope first? It, no. It, it mentions the Pope last. And I say this not to demean the Pope, but to understand the role of infallibility or the place of infallibility within the church. Who's infallible? God is infallible. infallible. Yes. Right. We who are then in communion with him participate in his infallibility, which is why the catechism goes directly to the church as having infallible faith. It means what we believe cannot be an error because God would be an error. Yes. St. Augustine says, rejoice, Christian, rejoice today for you have not only become Christ, you've not only become a Christian, but you become Christ himself. Yeah. In our participation, our baptism into him. And in our communion, then with one another, we enter into the communion of the Trinity. The church then is infallible. The church gathering in council is infallible. And of course, the church speaks because God speaks. Mm-hmm. And when the church speaks, she speaks infallibly. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, it helps us dislocate from the, coming at it from the wrong direction or, or maybe the not so helpful direction. It's not that the theological conclusions about the Holy Trinity are not true, but maybe not as helpful as we, as, as, as we climb the ladder of knowledge coming up through the created order to see God as I was meant to see him in and through the created order. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then to understand the truth in the church, infallibility in the church from the perspective of our baptism into him and all truths of the church being rooted in who he is first and foremost. Yes. Which is what St. Paul is saying in the second reading here in Romans chapter five, he says, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Well, it, well, exactly, Annie. And I, I think I'm going to just, we're going to bring this whole thing to a conclusion with the words of Pope Benedict because. Hey. Yeah. Okay. Read us that passage. Read us that verse again. Right. Okay. So because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. There you have it. Now, the love of God, the Holy Spirit. I've said ad nauseum. You guys are tired of me talking about, but it's not me talking. It's St. Paul talking. It's the Bible talking. Listen to what Pope Benedict says. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. These words from the first letter of John express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. So when Father Hezekiah quotes 1 John in every single Bible study, it's because (laughs) it is the heart of the Christian faith. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, okay, I'm going to read that sentence again. These words of the first letter of John express with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian image of God. And the resulting image of mankind and its destiny, that's its end, its purpose, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the same verse, St. John also offers a kind of summary of the Christian life. We have come to believe in God's love. In these words, the Christian can express the fundamental decision of his life. Being Christian is not a result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives, a li- gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. And so I say, from this foundation, from this starting point, we can begin to understand the nature of the church as a communion of love. And then having experienced this communion of love between persons, we can begin to scratch the surface of the love of God, the communion of the Trinity, and the great gift to which God is calling all of us. I'll leave you with this thought on this feast of the Holy Trinity. Ultimately, this is the feast of the church. Yeah. Is your community, is your church, is your parish living the life of the Holy Trinity? Are we coming to a a a further knowledge of the truth of god because of the gift of the holy spirit which is given to us to bring us together that we might grow in all things into him yeah the institute of catholic culture exists fundamentally because so many of our communities are struggling in this very way so that those who are hungry for the knowledge of the truth of the son of god might come to know him And having come to know him, we might come to love him more deeply. And having come to love him, being made one with him, we might be put into the communion of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And now manifest, reveal this truth of the life of the Holy Trinity, the life of God, once again upon this earth. To Christ our God be glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer 
including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities. And sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.